is all happening. <laughs> it's very exciting, isn't it? It is. All right, well, uh, welcome everybody. This is the first episode of uh, a show that I'm going to give a try and see how it goes. Uh, we're going to do one run uh, here called uh, The Complete Stanley Kubrick, and we're going to cover all of the uh, Kubrick features uh, that he made. There's 13 of, 13 of them in all. And uh, for this uh, journey, I've invited my friend and uh, the leader of the Criterion Gyre, or Gyre on Facebook, uh, Travis Nathan Trudell. Uh, welcome, Travis. Oh, hey, Matt. You, you have my middle name in there. Now everyone knows my initials are TNT, which is awesome. <laughs> Well, you know, that's, that's how you go on Facebook. So I just, all I see is the, uh, the little icon next to you. And, uh, occasionally we, we have met once in, in real life, IRL, as the kids like to say. Uh, but, um, and, uh, hopefully, uh, we'll, we'll meet again some sunny day, but for now, uh, we're just talking on the, on the old Skype here. Um, so yeah, so this is, uh, kind of, an approach that I wanted to try because I think that looking at a particular artist's body of work in order uh, can be illuminating on a lot of different levels, but it also really allows you to go back and look at some of the movies that you might kind of assume that you know a lot. And here I'm assuming that you, like me, have seen a few of these movies probably, you know, five plus, 10 plus times. Um, and so mixing in the movies that maybe we haven't seen quite that many times, uh, like the one we're going to talk about today, uh, really, I think allows you to look at those other movies, uh, in a different light. And I, I think that, uh, can be really fun especially with, with films as iconic as, uh, the Kubrick films that we're going to be talking about eventually. Um, so, you know, I, I guess the first thing we should do before we get into the Kubrick specifics is, uh, for people who have not heard you on some of the other, uh, podcasts that, uh, that you and I make the rounds on, um, if you could just say a few words about yourself, your background in film and sort of your interest in, uh, in not just Kubrick, but just movies in general. Well, yeah, I, uh, um, I was a, uh, I came late into film in terms of thinking about film as a art or as something more meaningful than a passing of time. Um, I didn't start really thinking about that until, you know, my, uh, my twenties. Um, before that, you know, I always watched movies, and I watched a lot of uh, movies on HBO. My grandmother had HBO, and I spent a lot of latch latch kid latch key kid days uh, sitting at my grandma's house while my mom and my grandmother worked together, uh, watching the same movies over and over again. I guess I really didn't put it put it together until recently, when I realized that uh, HBO was training me to be a deep film watcher. Because, you know, you watch one movie and it just kind of, sometimes, if unless it's really, really good, um, it, it'll leave an impression. But most of the times, 
uh, average film watching, just kind of you watch it, it, it connects with you or it doesn't, and you move on. But if you watch a movie that connects with you over and over and over again, you start getting a lot deeper into meanings and into composition and shot order and editing and sound and sound effects. And I didn't realize that, uh, you know, watching these movies over and over again, the same movies over and over again, was uh, really helping me build, comprehend, and understand the uh, language of film. And uh, so it was later in life, after I was kicked out of culinary school, um, that I realized I should do something with film because uh, it was something that was a passion for me. And I went to film school. I went to be a writer, but it didn't uh, work out because they closed my program down because I was the only writer in the program, which is always fun to spend all that money to find out your program shutting down. Uh, but I it's a good lesson for being a writer, though, right? You're oh, just all alone. Exactly, you're all by <laughs> yourself, and uh, you have now have more more source material to uh, work from. But uh, what I ended up doing was I joined the cinematography tract because uh, the directing track had like 30 students in it, and it just seemed too too much. Um, so I did cinematography. There's only five students in that track, and. Uh, I'm happy I did it because what it cemented for me and what it uh, made me realize first is that what I was connecting to with film is uh, visuals. Um, more than I thought it was the words, I thought it was the stories, but really it's the visual aspects of film that really have uh, been the thing that uh, draws me to movies. And so learning about camera and lenses and lighting uh, that was the thing that really got me going. Uh, I didn't go to a traditional film school. It was more of a conservatory, so it was just really hands-on and practical. We had one film history class, and I think we maybe watched four movies in that class, which is very different from normal film history classes in bigger universities and colleges. Um, a lot of it was clips and then kind of go investigate on your own. And I'm glad it was investigate on your own because because of that, I... I developed and cultivated a uh, a passion for, you know, searching out movies and finding the hard-to-find ones. This is back in the VHS days where you still had to hunt around to find good movies. And, you know, you had those shelves filled and filled with films of all countries and all nature. And uh, I was psyched, and I learned a lot. And one of the ways that I really got into a certain director that I liked was going chronological, which when you told me the concept for this uh, program, uh, I was super psyched because I think uh, watching a director um, in order in the ways that they've developed, what things that they have kept and what ideas or concepts or modes they have shed to become the director that made this famous movie that is considered a work of art, um, I think that's just as important as the the main film because it's growth, it's change, and if you're you're really into cinema, that's an exciting thing to witness and behold. Yeah, I think one thing you mentioned that I, w- that kind of, I was kind of thinking about was uh, the HBO um, approach and kind of the fact that, you know, they rotate all of those same movies over and over again. And obviously, uh, you know, you and I are not too far apart in age. And growing up in the 80s and 90s, you... Uh, kind of have to resign yourself at certain times to the fact that you probably only have 
four or five movies available to you at, at most, uh, for the majority of the time, unless you, you know, have the opportunity to go down the street and, uh, or for some people much further, uh, to the video store, um, and pick out a few movies, um, that, you know, you don't have this infinite number of films available to you, um, whether it's the, you know, for the most part garbage that's on Netflix, um, or the more sort of vaunted art house films that people now have available to them first on Hulu and, and now on Filmstruck. And I do wonder, you know, not to say, uh, not to say that the, uh, the kids these days or anything like that, but I think, uh, if I was growing up now, I probably would not take the opportunity to rewatch a lot of those films. Um, especially the, the mediocre ones that you're talking about. And I do think you get a lot out of that, that you don't, uh, really understand until you start to, um, look at movies, um, in a more, uh, removed or, or at least, um, academic, uh, way. Um, so I think, uh, as great as it would be to be a kid today, I think there is something very, um, very real about, uh, what, what that experience was like of waiting to see a movie of, uh, having only a certain amount of films available to you of having only the films that were going to come on TV that week. You know, I remember getting the, uh, the TV guide every week and highlighting all of the films that were going to be on Turner classics or AMC or HBO or Showtime and, uh, making a point to tape them and, I would just have these, you know, obviously just miserable quality, um, oh. <laughs> eight hour VHS tapes <laughs> filled with four or five movies that, <laughs> that oh, I yeah. had taped, uh, I you know, have... waiting, waiting to, for me to watch on my 13 inch TV VCR combo. I would do uh, the, I would do the same thing. I would, uh, you know, set that timer on the uh, VCR and record things when I was like sleeping, you know, cause there's always something good on late at night. And I remember one time, I think I was, uh. I think I went to record Richard Donner's Superman, um, and I went to bed because it was on. I think it was on at like eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night on Cinemax or HBO. I can't remember which. And uh, what I didn't know was in the night my parents decided to switch the channel to watch something, and inadvertently <laughs> I re recorded what they were watching. So you know I'm sitting there as a kid watching uh, <clears throat> watching Superman, the most like white bread and happiest American movies of all times. <laughs> Then all of a sudden, there's the uh, creepy demonic uh, children doing jump rope singing uh, from Nightmare on Elm Street. So that was the that was the first time I saw that movie. <laughs> it was by complete mistake, um, which was great because I that was a uh, that got me really into this concept of horror films, which I uh, I still appreciate. Um, yeah, got to see that movie uh, inadvertently, so it was uh, it was fun and. Uh, yeah, used to, I had many, many VHS tapes, and I just, you know, watch them over and over again. That was just, you didn't have all the options. They weren't, you know, HBO showed, like, maybe a rotating group of ten films that month. And, you know, occasionally they would have, like, a, a late-night uh, independent lens kind of thing, or uh, they had some sort of foreign cinema, or, you know... But it was so rare. Most of the times it was just the same movies over and over again. And 
I remember watching, I think that's why I saw Star Wars so many times. Not because of the theater, I wasn't old enough to go to the theater for that, but it was on HBO on repeat. Like, it played four times a day, and it was always on. So you just watch it over and over again until you have all the lines memorized. And Yeah, it's a, it was a, it's, it's very different. I, th- I find myself nowadays uh, less re-watching things that I've seen before because there are so many movies to watch. Right. Um, as my as my world view as my uh, world cinema uh, viewpoint expands wider and wider to include countries I've never seen movies from and uh, genres of films that I was never had any interest in or holes in my uh, blind spots in my movie watching that I need to fill. I find myself going back less and less to films I've already seen, um, but. That's another reason why I was excited when you asked me to do this because, you know, I have seen all the Kubricks a bunch of times. I've, I've, you know, I remember on Saturdays a buddy of mine, uh, we would go to the video store and between the two of us, because I think you could only rent like three or four at a time at my local video store, so the two of us would go and we would both rent like the maximum amount of one director or one theme. Mm. And we would just the whole weekend just never see the sunshine in the summertime and just watch all of the movies at once. And we did that with Kubrick. And at the time, I think, I didn't think we could, we didn't access some of his earlier films. I think the first one we could get is uh, Lolita Up. And this was before mm. Eyes Wide Shut. So it was Lolita to Full Metal Jacket. But we watched the hell out of those. And, you know, it was great. Yeah. I, I think I, I, I miss that. I miss having the luxury of time to be repetitive on some of my viewings. I don't have that anymore. I feel with family and life and work and the slate of movies to see. Yeah, well, I do think having kids allows you that a little bit because you're able to go back as they get older and, you know, rewatch those age-appropriate films uh, uh, you know, at each phase of, of their childhood that you saw earlier. But, um, yeah, you really have to make a point of, of making the choice to go back and watch those movies that you probably saw five or six times when you were a teenager or in your twenties. Um, and, uh, and to, to, you know, it's, it seems silly to say it this way, but to waste a couple, you know, a movie opportunity on something that you already know really well, um, sometimes doesn't feel, uh, worth it, but I do think it, it is, uh, very valuable, um, and, and can give you a new perspective on things too. I mean, as somebody who has spent the last, uh, almost decade now, watching an enormous amount of criterion films and, uh, really forcing myself to see all of these movies that I haven't seen. Um, knowing that I caught up the last few years really allowed me to, uh, have more free viewing time, which seems silly because it's just a personal, uh, you know, quest that I put on myself. But, um, if viewing time to go back and watch those movies and say, okay, well, now that I've seen all of these almost, you know, a thousand films that are from all over the world and from all time periods, do I feel the same way that I felt before about a movie like Taxi Driver um, or a silly movie like Ferris Bueller's Day Off? You know, I think the more films you see, the, the more your perspective changes. 
And, uh, and I think that is, uh, to, to kind of steer us to the, uh, the task at hand. I, I think that is something that is really important when it comes to Kubrick, because, um, in general, I think, uh, Kubrick is, is widely viewed as one of the greatest directors of all time. And I, I think, you know, we, we had a sort of bracket, silly bracket in our, in our Facebook group and he won, uh, the greatest of all directors, the <laughs> um, even, <laughs> yeah, the most directorist of, of all. And, and, and that was among, um, about 150 or 200 people who, um, for the most part lean towards, uh, c- cinephiles, uh, as opposed to sort of casual IMDb style moviegoers. And yet, um, there is a perception, I think, and this is one of the kind of two main criticisms I want to talk about, uh, when it comes to Kubrick before we dig into his work, there is a perception out there that he is kind of, uh, an, a gateway drug for people and, uh, kind of a director who, uh, is your first stop on the road to appreciating finer cinema and more complex movies. But there is a expectation among some people that at a certain point, when it comes to directors like Kubrick or Hitchcock, uh, or even Bergman and Kurosawa, that you put away childish things and you move on to the quote unquote, more sophisticated filmmakers, uh, that only, uh, the, the finest of cinephiles can appreciate <laughs> like, uh, Tarkovsky and Bellatar and, um, you know, and then of course, then you get into the cinephiles who, who go to the, uh, the next level of that, where it comes all the way back around and all of a sudden, you know, um, people like, uh, Paul W.S. Anderson are the greatest <laughs> directors oh, of all time. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I kind of wanted to ask your opinion on, um, that, uh, that part of Kubrick, um, and sort of that perception of him. Uh, and I particularly am curious in your take on it because I know you, uh, you teach some classes. Uh, you, I think you mostly teach, um, more production side classes at this point, but you have taught, um, film history classes before. And so I was curious if, you know, I assume Kubrick comes up in those classes and, and sort of what students attitudes are towards him and, and what your own attitudes, uh, are on him, uh, as you've kind of evolved as a movie watcher. Um, and just, you know, as a personal aside, as we were talking about, um, our own paths of, uh, movie watching, I think, 2001 for me was a, a major movie in that it was like the, I think it was like the first VHS widescreen I ever experienced. Like the knowledge that like, um, movie that until that point, I never really put it together that when I went to the movies, it was in a different ratio than when I watched a movie at home. Um, and, uh, and so when, when it sort of comes on the screen and, and that's one of those movies that they kind of refused to ever pan and scan. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. There may have been at some point a VHS of it that was yeah, pan and scan. I think but Kubrick never allowed it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think that was a, a big kind of step for me in that realization. And, and then the other thing I'll, I'll mention is that the reason that I bought a DVD player uh, in, I think 1999, 
um, was to get the the old snapper case Kubrick mm. uh, box set from Warner Brothers. Um, that was the first purchase I ever made oh, wow. uh, with my DVD player. So, uh, you know, I, I have this was definitely same, I have that yeah. same exact set. I uh, yeah. I uh, my my story for that set was uh, at the campus, the school I was working at, the same school I teach at now. I was a teaching assistant for a summer there, and uh, there was a sodium vending machine that was over by this like porch and the vending machine was notorious for it. it would like shoot the quarters out like after you put a dollar in whatever change it came out it would hit the bottom of that thing and just shoot the quarters out the front end so once a week when i was cleaning up campus as part of my duties i would go to that vending machine and i would stick my hand under the porch and scrape all the quarters out from underneath that porch <laughs> And that whole summer, I just made a jar of quarters. And by the end of the summer, I had enough money to buy that box set. So that box set, like, <laughs> I will never get rid of that box set because I spent so much time digging around for quarters <laughs> for it. It was, it's so worth it. Like, it was, you know, that was a milestone for me, that owning that collection of films, all of his movies in one place, like... I completely understand that same feeling of, you know, wanting to buy a DVD player just to see these movies. Like, it's, yeah, it is. It's a special thing. Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm, I'm just curious to to know, kind of, you know, knowing that about, uh, you know, how hard you kind of worked to acquire these movies. Was there ever a point in your uh, movie watching life where you where you thought, okay, well, I'm kind of beyond this Kubrick guy now. I, uh, it's weird, uh, you, you said earlier, you asked me kind of like what my, if my viewpoints align with student viewpoints or how my students react to these movies, and, uh, I find that most students have the same reaction that I had when I first saw Kubrick, which is, yeah, this is great, but I don't see the big deal, and I think it's time and, uh time in history that you go into understanding like what he did to make his films that it every time it ratchets it up to a new level of appreciation like uh you know i think let's say i would say the first kubrick film that i saw and of course i didn't know it was a kubrick film it was a stephen king film was the shining um that would probably say the first one that i like i i saw and you appreciate it for what it is. You know, it's a weird horror movie. Jack Nicholson is all over the place. Shelley Duvall screaming and crying everywhere. And it's creepy and there's all this stuff going on. And then you watch it again because you see it with your friends. Or it's midnight on Halloween and they're showing it at the local multiplex. So you guys all go to check it out. And what you don't see is all the subtle, nuanced uh, structure and uh, just the way that he's put the movie, the, the, the way he's constructed the film to create these senses of dread, to bring back and harken back to these ideas that he set up earlier. And, um, and that happens with repetition. So when I show them, like, say, 2001 A Space Odyssey, I get, like, 50%, that was amazing, 50%, I'm bored, which is expected. Most, you know, it's hard to... Uh, 
it's hard to get students, you know, because a lot of students come and they're like, yeah, man, I want to make this movie. I want to be, you know, I remember when I was in college, everyone wanted to be Quentin Tarantino. Um, so that was their basis. It was that bubble of films that he made in that world that he's in with Robert Rodriguez and some of the other indie film directors. And so that's the small bubble that we... Uh, that we all grew up in as our understanding of film. And when students come in, my goal is to kind of widen their view. And most of the times I use two or three or four films to kind of really say, see this, everything comes from this. Like before this, there was no, before this, there was no this kind of editing style. Before this, there was no this kind of uh, shot structure. Before this, there was no this type of dialogue um just kind of really kind of and kubrick is usually 2001 a space odyssey and uh, we watch the opening scene all the way to the bone in space usually if i don't have a full class period to watch the entire movie in i'll just show up until the they enter space and you know it's uh, people students become amazed when you know i'm like so how many minutes went by before we got our first close-up and they're like, well, we didn't even notice that. And I'll take it back and we'll watch it again. And it's something like eight minutes, 12 minutes before we get any sort of close-up in that movie. And it's important. It's an important close-up. It's, you know, it's the look of fear on one of the apes' face as night comes and the animals are crying in the background and everything is fearful and scared and huddled and he's looking up into the stars kind of thing. And it's an important close-up. And it's an important close-up when he's smashing the bones and the bones are flying everywhere. So it's this idea of, of uh, forethought and uh, choices. Kubrick is making choices. And explaining that to students really starts to open up their eyes to uh, this whole world of... I always explain it as choices. As filmmakers, these films don't just happen. You're not running around and capturing life. That's a documentary. You are deciding to make a choice because you are an individual person who is deciding how they want this information to be conveyed to an audience. And Kubrick is a perfect director to showcase choices, which I, I like, it's a kind of a the theory that I have when I'm teaching film and I'm, I'm teaching lighting or I'm teaching cinematography. And, uh, by the end of the semester when we've shown other films or those 50 students, the 50% of the students who said, I, I want to learn more, and they go back and start watching movies, uh, more Kubrick films, you, they start to realize that there is like themes and choices and ideas and concepts that carry throughout all of his films, and then they get excited about it. And me as an adult now, um, you know, uh, I think Barry Lyndon's a great example. The first time I ever saw that was in that box set that we bought. And after watching something like 2001 A Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, uh, Dr. Strangelove, you have this certain sense of energy. And then you get to Barry Lyndon and he, he subverts that energy into a different, a different style and a different pace and a different tension and a different uh, way of telling a story. And it is... It is completely different from then his follow-up, The Shining, and Full Metal Jacket. So it stands out as an oddball in terms of style that you're used to, which is a little bit more mainstream. And so it became the movie. I was like, oh, that wasn't. That's my least favorite. But now I've, you know, I've seen that. You know, I've seen that movie probably ten, fifteen times now, and it 
it grows every time every time I watch it as a as a film that should be valued should be studied more and more and more and I think it's slowly looking at how the inter internets the interwebs uh, is talking about it it's becoming higher and higher on the list of best Kubrick films ever and and that's all because of all because of time and all because of uh, expanse expanding your concepts of what cinema is and it's it's a I find Kubrick to be one of those directors that you can go back and re, has so much rewatchability because there's so much going on in the filmmaking process, in the choices he's making, in the structures of his films that go beyond the stories of his films. And so that's why, uh, you know, Kubrick is one of the directors that I have seen multiple, multiple times and one of the few directors that I endeavor to catch any opportunity I can to see all of his films on the big screen. I, I got the pleasure of seeing 2001 in 70 millimeter a couple of years ago, and I was ecstatic. And now every time a Kubrick film comes around, um, I'm there. The MFA usually shows them, which I'm going to go catch some more this uh, this winter when they do their Kubrick uh, marathon. Yeah, I actually saw Barry Lyndon uh, at the MFA this year um, in 35, and. Uh, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was an incredible experience and, uh, we'll probably get to, to Barry Lyndon a little bit after the, uh, criterion release of that film. And I think that release will likely accelerate its position within Kubrick's catalog and its reputation among people because, uh, it really d deserves a higher profile than it used to have. And it's nice to see, that building. Um, and, and that was probably the only Kubrick that I've seen in the last few years. Um, uh, until we, uh, you know, we watched fear and desire. Um, and, and I, so I will be curious to see how the other one, how, what my response is to the other ones. Um, because it has been a while. Um, I probably watch the shining with my wife every, every so often. Um, but I, I really like your your use of of choices, uh, and because I think that um, ultimately, when you're making a movie, you are either making a choice or you're not making a choice. And I think the the mark of the truly great directors is how rarely they don't uh, make a choice. Um, and I think they Kubrick is one of those directors who is so in control of everything that he's doing and is so thoughtful about it and deliberate. And he is so, uh, so stuck on his task at hand, um, that he, um, really there, there's, there's just such a, such confidence behind the films that he makes. Um, and you, you, you feel like you're in good hands. And I think that those are the best directors. I think a lot of directors like that, you need to learn how to watch their movies in order to, um, appreciate the fact that you are in good hands 
you, they, the, they need to build that trust. And part of building that trust is you putting in the work to do that. I think Tarkovsky is a great example of that. A very similar, uh, kind of director to Kubrick in the sense that, uh, he is extremely controlling in what you see on screen and how it's presented to you. Um, and yet, you know, because of the way that he, uh, is very deliberate in his pacing, um, avoids kind of easy answers when it comes to his themes and characterizations. Um, he's just a much more, uh, inaccessible director to the, um, the, the typical film watcher in America. And I think the reason why Kubrick is so is, is, is perceived so much as a gateway drug is because he, his control does not come from, uh, a different way of making movies than what people are used to nowadays. And I think it's, he's just, it's just simply a, uh, he's just simply that he does it better than anybody yeah. else. No, and I, I think, yeah. and I, and, 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 and he does it on a higher level than, than anybody else. And so I think when you watch most of his movies, I think, you know, I, and we'll, we'll get into like the variation, uh, across his films. The shining is certainly one of his more accessible movies. Um, whereas something like Barry Lyndon or 2001 is a little bit more difficult for the, for the average viewer today. Um, but I think it, ultimately it's a lot easier to kind of understand, uh, on a profound level, what he's doing um, and, and to connect with his movies, um, than it is for, you know, a lot of the, a lot of directors on his level. And I think Hitchcock is similar to that in the sense of you can just watch a Hitchcock movie and appreciate the, the story and the way the characters are responding to the suspense in the film. Um, and I think, directors like that can be easily poo-pooed <laughs> by, um, you know, quote unquote, sophisticated viewers. Um, but I think they're missing out on, uh, the elevation of craft that those filmmakers, uh, have sort of perfected. Yeah. Um, and that's that, I mean, and that's it. It's the, it's the layered, it's the layered effect of their films in which you have the surface story, you have the underlying tensions, and you have the craft, which is underneath it all. And, you know, going back to, you were talking about Kubrick, is uh, if, if he couldn't get the thing he desired or saw in his head as the way of telling this story through this shot or this mode or this mood, he would invent it. Like, he spent so much time with people inventing new things to use to be able to tell his story the way he wanted to right. through through you know lenses on Barry Lyndon to camera gear on 2001 a space odyssey to you know the the use of a steady cam uh in the shining he really took always took everything up a level by going so deep as to invent whatever new technology he needed to tell his story. And then, you know, same with Hitchcock, you know, if he couldn't get the shot, he would figure out a way to do it. 
Oh, I can't get a close-up on that phone that gives me the depth of field I wanted. Make me a 40-foot, you know, 40-foot-sized phone so I can shoot it on the lens I want to shoot it and make a big fake finger to go into that phone. Um, and that's a, that's a level of craftsmanship and uh, uh, work that only comes from some of these directors who have made a large body of work and have moved from like studio system to outside the studio system. They have this uh, uh, structured uh, way about going to make their films that, um, you know, a lot of the uh, independent films or the uh, 1970s uh, American New Wave films, they went for like a run and gun, let's catch it on the fly, loose and, and uh, free, which is great. But these directors, you know, they're not about that. They're very, very formal in their approach to how they make their films. Um, and yeah, Kubrick, Kubrick is a formalist to the utmost. He has very structured way about doing things. Right. And, and that's where you, you have your lines of uh, Kubrick, Hitchcock, you have your Ozu, you have your Kurosawa, you have these direct, Tarkovsky, you have these directors who have made the movie on paper before they step onto set and it's it's all thought out all choices are made um, they do not let any choice uh, be a, a minor choice every choice is as important as the last choice on a film so you we know that's where you get these stories of like uh, Kurosawa waiting for uh, a week and a half on a beach for the perfect waves so they can film this one scene with him, with a character walking through the beach with the waves crashing behind them. And that was just how it is, because that's the way that that visionary director wants to see these things happening. And I think um, with modern technology and the way things are going nowadays, I don't think there's the luxury of time to be able to have these visions, uh, these structured, uh, well-conceived movies to be made as well, as much because, uh, you know, most movies have a street date before we've even finished, begun filming them. And back in those days, it was the movie was made until it was finished, and then it had a release date for some of these directors. Um, you know, the studio always churned out things and had an idea of when they wanted it, how many days you had to film it. There was a math to it. But, you know, with someone like Kubrick who decided to go and make his own movies and self-finance or find his own financing, or, you know, Kurosawa who had complete control over what he wanted, or Ozu, uh, these are all directors that uh, kind of built their own system to work in, which allowed them the freedom to do whatever they needed to do to to have their visions come to the screen so yeah very layered craftsmen and most of them if you ask them if they were artists they would laugh at you because they're they don't consider them what they're doing art they consider what they're doing to be just like uh you know fine fine craftsmen they they, they are they are workers who are building something as opposed to artists who are expressing something Right. Which, is, which is also a very telling sign for a lot of these directors. They all share that same opinion. What is it, Ozu with his tofu maker comment? And, right. Uh, um, Kubrick was the same way. He would laugh or he would make fun of people who would call him an artist. He wasn't an artist. He was a craftsman. He was a scientist. He was an explorer. He wasn't 
you know, he wasn't art, which is yeah. uh, very interesting. Well, and Kubrick, you know, fa famously, you know, was obsessed with commercials. Um, he thought uh, that because editing was the only art that was original to film, uh, that TV commercials, as they were evolving, was the the most elevated for, uh, form of uh, cinema. <laughs> um, and I think, uh, you know, that kind of what you were talking about just in terms of them kind of not seeing themselves as artists, uh, is kind of gets into, I think the other kind of big criticism of Kubrick that I wanted to touch on briefly before we dive into the movies, um, which is that he is a formalist. He is a, um, he's an observer as opposed to a kind of feeler or interactor, uh, as a filmmaker and that his films are somehow colder and more removed than, uh, the, the average great filmmakers, uh, movies are, you know, especially comparing him to someone like Kurosawa or Bergman, um, that his movies and, and Tarkovsky obviously famously thought of 2001 as a very cold film, um, and made Solaris partially in response to that. Um, I was curious what your feeling about that was, I guess, I think for a lot of Kubrick fans, uh, there's kind of two responses to that, that are kind of opposite, which are, uh, yes, he has a, a cold presentation, but that's part of the point. And then I think the second one is the one that I probably lean more towards, which is that I kind of completely disagree with that characterization of his work and think of him as kind of one of the great humanists of, uh, cinema. Um, and that his movies are in, in fact, um, quite funny, um, quite, uh, concerned with humanity, um, and, and constantly looking for a way for us to evolve into being better people. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with the, the latter. I agree with your, your statement. I think, I think because he's so closed in his structure of his film and so formal, that people come off with this idea of a very cold feeling yeah. because he doesn't, uh, he doesn't over dramatize things mm. as he, as he, as he progressed as a filmmaker, he stripped away a lot of this, uh, melodramatic, uh, uh, tools or crutches that, uh, a lot of, uh, movies had, uh, um, incorporated or what, you know, what you were supposed to use to be able to convey this emotion or feeling. Um, but I do think he is concerned with man and with the involvement of man. Um, every one of his films has some sort of pattern of growth of one, one individual. Uh, I keep saying man, cause I don't, he didn't make a single woman's film. Yeah. Well, um, that was the other, I mean, I think that's the other thing that comes into play in both the, in both of the things that we talked about, because, you know, obviously like, um, 
cinephiles are stereotypically perceived uh, as men. Fortunately, that um, perception is is quickly changing. I think a lot of social media has a lot to do with that because um, women have been able to have their voices heard in um, in those circles in the way that they uh, weren't able to previously. But I think um, I think that perception uh, has been has really hurt Kubrick because the uh, I do think people think of it as this like you know especially movies like Clockwork Orange and um, and The Shining as as male movies and um, that you know eighteen year old uh, film major freshmen uh, you know are obsessed with Quentin Tarantino and Stanley Kubrick uh, because they are you know, depicting these portraits of masculinity in some way. Um, and I think that also goes into the cold aspect of it too, that somehow there's, they, they're devoid of emotion because they're more male. Um, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I do oh, think no. those, those things definitely go hand in hand, but go, no, go, I, go I, ahead. I, I agree. I think, I think that's part of what it is, is because most of the subjects of his stories, it's from a male perspective and it's, it's, uh, usually, uh, a man coming across a concept theory or idea or uh, something that changes about themselves that opens their world but simultaneously um, uh, keeps them guarded. I think all, a lot of his main characters are very emotionally guarded, which causes them to come off as cold or detached because we do take an observatory... Uh, viewpoint through most of the films um, which I think is is good because if we were too deep into one character's perception then uh, it's easy to uh, misconstrue uh, the message of the films that he's trying to con he's trying to get across but I think that um, you know I think because it's so formalized and structured you know it's like the idea of like brutalist art a lot of people consider it ugly, but because of the formal st structure of that art form, there is a beauty inherent within it if you're willing to learn about it, read up on it, and really take in this idea, this film movement, this, uh, excuse me, this art movement and this type of art. But if you're just going to look at it on the surface level, then yeah, it's something that can kind of be keeping you at arm's length. But that's where I think we talked about Kubrick being a layered director. Um, at first, on first blush, if you're just watching a movie of his, you might get wrapped up into the story, but you also, if you're not into the story, you might feel detached and distant from it. And it's only through uh, repetition and really watching the movie for a second time or a third time or, you know, in some cases with, like, The Shining, you know, the 30th time, you really start to find all of this, uh, these messages that Kubrick is trying to put through the films, which are very human. They are about growth and change and fear and how to either overcome those fears, succumb to those fears, and only through doing those things, only through sometimes destruction, are we able to learn and grow, which, you know, I think he, I think out of all the genres of films he made, I think war was the only one he revisited more than once. Everything else he stayed within a certain type of story 
and then it's almost like that is the ultimate of that version of that story. So when we talk about The Shining or we talk about the uh, Clockwork Orange or 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, they are the pinnacle of that type of film to watch. And I think it's because he has taken all these concepts and ideas and really plucked out of them the one or two things that truly need to be talked about for humanity to be able to grow into another level. He was always concerned with that growth. I agree with you. Yeah, and well, and I think the flip side of, of the change is that he was always really interested in the um, powers within humanity who uh, didn't want that change and growth and evolution. And I think the 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 chance for his protagonists to evolve had to run through the powers that be and the uh, societal or um, social pressures that um, they struggled with and that they attempted to overcome and they very frequently did not in his films and that makes them you know certainly his movies are not particularly uplifting um for the most part um but i think in depicting that there's a yearning uh in his work that uh puts him i think closer to a director like kurosawa who was uh sort of where uh where his heart on his sleeve um uh, you know, with the exception of a few films, uh, uh, an extremely kind of earnest director who uh, was constantly striving for the better side of humanity. Um, I don't think that those. I don't think that the two of them are as far apart as people assume when they initially watch their movies, because I think that they are both looking at those um, those pressures that are holding humanity down and searching for answers as to how to overcome them and how, and, and fascinated with people who try to overcome them. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think these are all kind of baked into these movies and they're really big topics, um, that, you know, with how, how many of his films are spread out so far apart he spent years and years developing these movies to try to get as much of what he wanted to say about that particular subject as possible into it, um, without losing his, uh, sort of essential themes, uh, from movie to movie. Um, and that makes, makes him kind of, a, a, obviously a different director than somebody like Ozu who practically made the same movie every time, uh, from a, uh, genre or, uh, general story focused perspective. Um, but he, he's similar to Ozu in a sense that he's always using the story that he's telling to talk about those larger issues of society and to, to really, to speak to the, the average viewer of his films who basically none of his movies are about something that people would typically go through. You know, I mean, the closest is probably, 
um, eyes wide shut. And uh, I don't know about you, but I have never been invited to a high society mask wearing orgy. Um, I was invited once, but I turned it down because I just, I know where it's going to end up. They never end up pleasant or good. Come on. That's true. I've seen yeah. enough movies to know mask wearing orgies end up in some <laughs> sort of death or everyone just feels uncomfortable at the end of the night. No, that's uh, true. Yeah, I would say awkward. probably, I would say that a uh, uh, <clears throat> full metal jacket would probably be the closest to a, like sure, an actual. Sure, that's true. Um, I think my dad, my dad always said uh, uh, Vietnam for him, uh, training was like full metal jacket, but actually being there was like the movie Platoon. Um, and I've always, I always took that to heart when watching those films about talking about the realism of what was going on there. And I don't think that, uh, I think he really captured the dehumanizing of the soldier, which is, you know, part of what you're saying about Matthew Modine's character and kind of wanting to buck against a system that is trying to oppress them or societal rules that are trying to keep them in line. But, you know. We'll get into that when we get into that movie. Right, right. Uh, well, I think this is all uh, really interesting, and I think we'll we'll revisit just about all of this uh, as we make our way through here. But um, I think uh, I think maybe we can get into uh, the first movie, which um, doesn't touch on many of these things. No, <laughs> not, not at all. Uh, so yeah, so. Um, this is uh, this is the first uh, feature that Kubrick made, Fear and Desire. Um, it's barely a feature; it's about an hour long, um, and he he made it uh, for a very low budget. He basically quit his job at Life; he was a photographer um, to make this movie. Shot it with about ten people, including the the cast and crew. Um, and uh went over budget but still it cost about fifty thousand dollars i think and the and the film uh was released uh here and there in screenings it was reviewed by the new york times and uh i'll put a link to the review in the notes because i i found it very uh entertaining um and uh and then it it, it it kind of went away forever. Uh, and people thought that it was completely gone. Kubrick was kind of snatching up prints of it whenever he could get, get his hands on them. Um, and, uh, then started to be screened, uh, here and there in the nineties and early two thousands. And I actually saw a screening of it in New York in the early two thousands. Uh, that was the first time I, I got to see this movie. Um, and, uh, then about five years ago, it was released uh, on Blu-ray and uh, DVD by Kino in the U.S. and um, I think Masters of Cinema in the U.K. Along with um, the two shorts he made before this and then a, a doc commissioned documentary that he made in between this and uh, his next film, Killer's Kiss. Um, and this is a movie, like I said, he was buying up all these prints when it first started screening in the nineties, he discouraged people from going to it. Uh, he thought it was basically just garbage that nobody should pay any attention to. Uh, and, uh, people did not listen because he's Stanley Kubrick and anything that he made, uh, is of value to people because they're curious about, um, his, his beginnings. And so, uh, that's just basically the, the small kind of history surrounding it. But, um, 
Yeah, there was always uh, a part of me that uh, wanted to respect his wishes of please don't watch this movie. And so there was always a part of me that's like, oh, man, I shouldn't watch that. He didn't want me to watch that movie, and I respect him, so I should respect his opinion. Yeah. But yeah, no, you have to watch it. You have to watch uh, everything if you really want to see the growth, chart the growth of a filmmaker. So Yeah, and, and I personally feel like, you know, if this had been a film that he made privately or if, if it was a, you know, if... Uh, if, if they released di- private diaries of Stanley Kubrick, you know, they did that with Kurt Cobain actually. Yeah. Um, I think that then it becomes a little bit of a kind of moral question of, do I really, uh, do I really want to watch this or read this when I know that the person that created it never intended for anybody else to see it. But this was a movie that he released. It was a movie that, that helped his career ultimately, even though, um, it, it didn't kind of directly, um, con- contribute to the rest of his career. Um, and so in that sense, I, I do think it's a, it, it's okay to watch this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, the question of, of whether you, uh, you know, will actually enjoy it is a different one, <laughs> but so what, well, I, I'm getting ahead of myself here though. What, what do you think of, of Stanley Kubrick's debut feature fear and desire? Oh, it's, it's all over the place. It's uh, he's reaching well beyond his abilities in this film. I think he really wants to get into some deep uh, psychological and uh, commentary about war and its effects on people, but he just doesn't have the tools to convey any of this. Um, you can see it's very it's very ham-fisted in some sections. It's very uh, pretentious and others. Um, he, sh- he directed, uh, shot and edited the film. So he did everything. So, and this is one of those cases where, you know, a lot of people always make this case where, uh, someone could have used an editor to really kind of tie the elements together a little bit more, uh, uh with a little more grace and, uh, ability. Cause a lot of these cuts are very hard. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, I mean, that opening scene with the soldiers talking to each other, you have no idea where anybody is. And, and I, I feel like that's not necessarily something that the editor could have fixed. I, I yeah. think the, the issue was that he didn't understand how to shoot something in a yeah, way that the, could be edited in a legible fashion. Yeah having an editor on set would have been yeah. where those things would have been solved because eye right. lines aren't matching, uh, close-ups aren't matching wides. It's it's very, I mean, there's even, there's lots of recycling footage, I, I noticed. There's, like, lots of shots of someone looking at something, and then, like, later in the movie, we have a repeat of that shot of someone looking at something <laughs> in a different scene. It's a... It's it's kind of rough. I mean, it's the it's written by uh, Howard Sackler. Is that his right? Howard Sackler. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, he won a Pulitzer for the Great White Hope, and so this is one of his screenplay early screenplays that he had done. Um, I think he's he's famous because he's the one rumored to have written the uh, Indianapolis speech in the Jaws movie that Quint says. Um, he was the one. He was brought in by uh, Robert Shaw to uh, write that speech for him because huh. the one that was on page wasn't very good, and so uh, the two of them went away one weekend, got drunk, and wrote that speech, and then came back and you know did it all in one shot. 
which uh, you know elevates that uh, Jaws movie to a higher level. So yeah. much so that they hired him to write the screenplay for Jaws two. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, Kubrick, you know, he's he's re- there's lots of heady concepts um, in this movie. Um, I mean, right off the bat, they talk about uh, where where these characters are. It's like is a uh, a country of the mind. They are not yeah. in any war. They are not in any certain place. They are in the woods, lost in the country of the mind. Yeah, and it's uh, it's so sort of like, uh, you know, self consciously a movie. It's like they they only exist they only exist if we create them. It's so. I mean, it's yeah. it's very uh, very it, film it, student. It, it's it's almost like this. Like if if uh, you were to just put this on Nick at Night one day, I would think I'm watching an episode of Combat or an episode of like uh, the Twilight Zone. I was just that... gonna say I totally was reminded of the Twilight Zone with that opening. I mean, it's so and 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 also was reminded of the Twilight Zone in that they're trying to depict this uh, you know foreign country. Um, and it is so clearly the hills around Los Angeles that I, I actually know. didn't know where this movie was shot when I first started watching it. And I was like, I've totally walked right there where that is. <laughs> and I looked it up and they're, Oh, San Gabriel Valley. Yep. There oh, you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When they get, when they get around the cabin of the general and there's just palm trees, I'm like, where the are they? <laughs> I'm like, this is LA. This is out in California, I think. Uh, but it's, it's a, yeah. And it also has the feel of a, uh, I'm a comic book guy, so it has the feel of kind of like an issue of EC Comics, like weird war tales or right. uh, or a blazing combat. It has that, um, yeah, it has a feel of just completely um, being removed from everything. It is its individual bubble. It's a bubble story that takes place within, you know, our mind. So once, you know, right away he's starting, he's starting his career with these you know, larger concepts, but he just doesn't have the money or the talent to convey them in a subtler, subtler manner. Um, and I think, I think a couple years before this movie was Steel Helmet by Samuel Fuller. So it had a bit of that feel, um, to it as well. I agree. You can see that maybe he took some of those, uh, he was inspired by that film. Um, to make his own version of it but yeah it's it's uh it's rough yeah well i mean obviously first of all sam fuller was in combat um stanley kubrick was not and i think that shows sort of immediately um i think steel helmet is is such a film dedicated to soldiers and is so unconcerned with people who were not in combat uh, that it, it kind of revolutionized war films to a certain degree. Uh, this movie never feels like you're getting out of the mind of a 24-year-old who has no experience in any of these things. Exactly. And I think, and I wonder if the criticism lob- lobbed at it helped make him such a deep researcher Mm. of subjects for his future films. So he would never get called out on that kind of level of amateurness uh, again. 
Um, because, yeah, like even when they're kind of like walking or moving in some sort of formation to attack a house or whatever it is that they're doing, it's just like four guys stumbling through a field. Like they never have any sort of sense that they are yeah. soldiers. Yeah, and I think also, you know, that setup is so ambitious, the idea that this is supposed to be any war and any people. And, um, you know, I'm going to tell you a story about generic war that is going to reveal something of, of value. Um, you really need to come correct with the story that you're going to tell with a setup like that. And this is a very straightforward narrative of a bunch of guys, you know, their plane crashes behind enemy lines. They need to get back. They stumble upon a, a dog and a girl. They uh, discover that there's a general nearby and that they can, uh, you know, take him out. There's a pretty boring philosophical debate about that. Um, <laughs> and, and then, and then, you know, some of uh, these kind of drift off into their, um, existential destination. Um, there's not really anything in there that speaks to, from a, from a plotting or a larger thematic perspective that speaks to the issues that Kubrick seems to want to address in the film based on the framing and so the way that he addresses those issues is with these, this really heavy handed, uh, just blatantly obvious dialogue, um, that basically just says the themes that he wants to talk about. Oh um, yeah. And, and, if, and if they're not yeah. saying it out loud, they're saying it in, in voice, inner yeah. monologue <laughs> yeah. that you can hear out loud, which really kind of goes into his, uh, you know, building a psychological landscape because you have these characters thinking their fears right and it's uh and even one point i think there's a there's the shot of the four of the four the four of them yeah the four of them walking up a hill and all of their inner fears dialogue is, is overlapping each other to this right. like cacophony of just nonsense and it's just so over the top <laughs> it's just like yeah well and the music is pretty over the top oh, uh, yeah. as well in this film um, yeah, it, it's, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's interesting to watch. Uh, I guess it's encouraging to watch, uh, for anybody who would, um, aspire to filmmaking that this could be, uh, an initial effort, uh, from somebody like Kubrick, because a lot of his later strengths are, uh, are not present here. Um, that being said, I, I do think that there are, there is uh, value in some of the film, and I do think even that the the way that he edits the movie at times um, becomes uh, kind of interesting. I mean, he clearly has an eye um, that that is a was a natural thing for him um, as a photographer, um, and uh, you know the, I think. There are certain sequences here where if you watch them as kind of a silent film, which initially he had considered making the movie uh, as a silent, um, they play really well. They actually play, I think, a lot better than when there's sound on them. Um, I think the 
the sequence with the soldier and the tied up, uh, prisoner, uh, woman, um, which is basically like a, uh, it's like a two minute taxi driver, basically. <laughs> um, you know, oh, yeah, he's just so like desperate and sleazy for her. And like, uh, you know, that line of him saying like, you can hate me, but at least like me, like, it's just, it's oh, so, it's so yeah, over that's, the top. That's a, that's a total like film noir type line. Where you, oh uh, yeah. Well, there's a lot, I think there's a lot of noir in here. I mean, the, the existential dread in the, in the, in the dialogue is so noirish and, and the way kind of there's, there's this kind of especially the captain has this very like hard boiled, uh, voiceover that is, uh, it's, it's almost, it's almost comical in the, in the kind of double indemnity fashion of it being so highly stylized that, uh, you, you can't help but kind of laugh at it. Um, although in double indemnity, that's kind of in a good way. <laughs> yeah, no, um, exactly. Um, but I think that that sequence, the, ta the taxi driver sequence, as I'm now going to call it, um, is, uh, is actually kind of interestingly shot. Um, you know, there's a lot of like people coming up from the bottom of the frame and the way he, um, has him approach her is very kind of threatening and, uh, suspenseful, um, so I, I do think there are moments here where you can say, okay, well, this guy, like, obviously, um, has a natural gift for, um, how things should be, um, or, or at least has sort of a natural enthusiasm about particular moments and using, uh, the filming technique and editing technique in a way that hits on these very emotional notes. Um, yeah. The invasion into the house is the same way with the kind of knocking the stew over and things like I, that. I was, it's like, I was taken aback by the, uh, the level of violence and the, yeah. the brutality of that scene. Like I wasn't expecting it to be like for a 1952 film, I wasn't expecting like that, which, uh, which going off of something you were saying, uh, you can tell his strengths are when he's on an interior or a studio space where he has complete control over everything because the lighting, the mm. camera work, all that is so much better when he's inside than when he's outside. Outside, he's always, you can tell he's fighting with just trying to keep everything looking normal. And interior, he is really being expressionistic in his lighting and his camera style. And that scene, the, the, the killing the soldiers who are, uh, or eating food, they're holding food and guns, the two things that they need. And, uh, uh, you know, you have the, uh, stew fall on the ground, mixing with one soldier's blood. And you've got the, uh, the other soldier being stabbed while clutching really tightly to his piece of bread. And then he releases that piece of bread. So artistic. He releases life. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, a. Uh, you know, for every drop of, wow, that's cool. There's always a bit of, oh my God, you're trying to, you're selling this way too hard. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. It, 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 it definitely is a, um, historical artifact as opposed to, you know, an interesting film on its own. And, and I also think, you know, it would be difficult to watch this movie out of context and know 
that it was a Kubrick movie or guess even that it was a Kubrick movie, um, which is not unusual for a filmmaker, um, of any caliber. Their first film typically is not, you know, uh, a perfect representation of them and their themes right out of the gate. Um, you know, I, I recently watched, uh, Edward Yang's, uh, first short, um, that was part of a, uh, four part anthology film in our time. Um, it's about 20 minutes and, uh, I was struck by just how much of his style and, uh, thematic, uh, concerns, um, and, uh, just kind of, uh, voice, uh, was fully formed, uh, at the very beginning. Um, and I think, well, part of that is just that he had been working on other movies previously. So, um, he kind of knew where he wanted to go initially. Um, but I do think that is unusual, um, for filmmakers. Um, and I, I, I don't fault Kubrick for a movie like this and in the way that I think he may have, I mean, I guess the question of, of whether he wanted people to see this or not was is, is whether he was embarrassed by it or if he really just didn't want people to be making money off of a movie that he thought was not good, you know, kind of just taking people's money under the name of Stanley Kubrick. Um, and, uh, and I, I kind of hope it's the latter because I, I don't think that he has any reason to be embarrassed by the movie, even if I think we both agree it's not a very good movie. Um, you know, he was making a movie with 10 people for, uh, barely any money, um, trying to get something done when that was the only opportunity that he had. Uh, yeah, if this so was, if, if this was a, if this, if you consider this his student film, right. You just like, look at it as like, this is the movie he would have made if he went to USC, UCLA, if, you know, there was a big film program at that point and he was going to film school. If this was his student film, you're totally like, okay, I get it. You know, there's all these heady concepts that you can't quite get because you don't have the talent or the money to achieve them. You know, it's all those things that you expect from a student film, um, you know, because you just spent all your time watching all these movies and getting all these concepts and these ideas and you want to express something in a deeper sense, but you really can't do it yet because you don't have the, the you know, there are scenes of natural talent in the movie. I think one of the things that you pick up in this film is the the Kubrick gaze the dead on looking straight at the camera uh, character central character like in, in, in a point of either mania or uh, complete uh, when uh, Sydney Sydney's the guy that's left behind with the girl that has a yeah. taxi driver moment and you have that as the first time we get that Kubrick look where we're looking down at him, he's staring directly up at us in the camera, and you're seeing him devolve mentally, which you is repeated a few times with uh, like Alex and Coop and right. Orange and uh, what is uh, Piles and, uh, and uh, Full Metal Jacket. Um, you have that moment that I think is, is something he does carry, but unlike. Uh, like, you know, we've been going through some of the Bergman films over in our other group. Um, you know, you can see the DNA of Ingmar Bergman in all of his earlier films and just watching it kind of blossom and grow. With this one, you can see that he kind of, like, 
it's almost like he he was mimicking too many others. And then I think that I don't want you to watch it is because he had nothing to say in about himself in that movie. And yeah. So it, it, I don't think more more embarrassment, less of kind of like the myth of Stanley Kubrick. I don't want you know. <laughs> I want you to all believe that I started at Killer's Kiss and worked my way up, and this movie is something that just didn't happen because it wasn't like my movie. You know, yeah. it's that weird. It's that weirdness of like you know you can see all kinds of influences in this film, but nothing that truly says this is a Stanley Kubrick film. Much like you get in, like, say, Spartacus, where he took it over from someone else and he tried to inject some of his work into it, but it is not a Stanley Kubrick feeling film. Which yeah, and he from... and he tried to to disown it, you know, throughout yeah. his life, um, and that that was actually a big part of why he didn't even want them to try to include it in that snapper case uh, collection that we both purchased because um, he didn't consider it um, one of his movies sort of in the Kubrick canon for him. Um, And he wasn't even a a big fan of Killer's Kiss either. Um, He, he kind of thought of his career as starting at the killing. Um, Mm. And I I am, I am also curious because fear and desire is a public domain movie. Um, I'm curious uh, if Criterion made a conscious decision not to include uh, the film on their uh, on their Blu-ray of The Killing, um, simply because uh, they knew that Kubrick kind of didn't think of it as a movie of his, and he and they kind of viewed it as as more as purely a curiosity and not uh, sort of as something that gave value to the killing in the way that I think killer's kiss does, which, which we'll get to. I mean, I think the other thing I would ask you is, you know, because it is interesting that he, his first film was a war film. There was no particular reason for him to choose this subject as his first film. Uh, and it was the thing that he went back to. I think there's a number of his movies that touch on war, like Dr. Strangelove and Barry Lyndon, but he made, he made, uh, two tr- really true war films in Paths of Glory and um, Full Metal Jacket. And I, I'm curious if you feel like there is anything of those movies in this from the perspective of sort of what war is about or what Kubrick wanted to say about war and its effect on man. I think, I think this movie you could probably it's a very faint line but you could draw a line to paths of glory there is this idea of men uh you know they touch a little bit upon this idea of uh not wanting to you know not wanting to die for a cause that is foreign to them or this concept of uh you know what is war and what is the point of it you know if we're just going to waste lives and then there's this idea of uh, a bit of uh, glory, which, uh, you know, doing something that is right versus something that is, uh, you know, with Mac, the character of Mac in this movie, deciding that, you know, the only way to kind of really salvage this journey, this mistake, this crash, and this journey is to take advantage and kill this general. Right, um, he's going to go home and fix radios for the rest of his life. Yeah, so, so he wants to do, do something great now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which 
is a very is a very typical kind of uh, uh, reasoning in the uh, like the World War Two generation of let's go over there and do something right and take out some bad guys and some evil because when I come home I'm just going to live a simple plain life and so there is a bit of that in uh, in Paths of Glory. But uh, there's, it's, and there's also a tiny, it's so minuscule, but there's a tiny bit of class structure in Fear and Desire that is carried forward in a lot of his other movies. And that's with the lieutenant and Mac. Mac being the sergeant, a grunt, kind of like, you know, most sergeants in movies are like, they care a lot about their guys. Whereas the lieutenant is an officer class, which usually means that you come from some sort of money or education so you think you're above the soldiers who are usually drafted into a war or very poor come from poorer classes and so there's always in war films there's always this bit of a class struggle which they go full bore on in paths of glory but there's a little bit of that here the lieutenant uh, makes remarks or quips he has all these really esoteric comments that are just make me think that uh, Francis Ford Coppola saw this film and then made a, his uh, Kilgore character based on him. Because, you know, you have stuff like uh, they're out building a raft and the lieutenant says, nothing so refreshing as being out of doors behind enemy lines. You know, he has these, like, just <laughs> these, these statements that are supposed to be, like, really profound, but they're really... <laughs> They're just really silly. Or uh, I wish that it would be nice if the sun would paint us green so we could be camouflaged as opposed to brown. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just ridiculous. But uh, I think I think there's a bit of that because uh, when the lieutenant is uh, talking about his plans, you know, Mac is saying, oh, the same plans that got us here, meaning, you know, his calculations is what got the plane crash in the first place. So there's a tension between the two of them that never goes anywhere, that is never resolved, that is never mined for anything more than a quick sketch of who these two people are. But I think later films, he that is more of a focus of the cl- a division of uh, classes, which you know he gets into a great deal in Paths of Glory and it's a great deal in Barry Lyndon. Um, but yeah, it, it's that. also done much more effectively in the Steel Helmet, the film oh, that yeah. you mentioned earlier. Um, no, yeah, but I, I agree. I mean, I think there are a few a few of those elements. I, I mean, the thing that I was reminded of a little bit um, is the kind of uh, surreal elements of Full Metal Jacket, particularly the second half, is so out of place, like. Uh, you know, I think people kind of go back and forth on this in terms of whether it, uh, it, because it obviously does not feel like Vietnam. And so the question is kind of, are you supposed to notice that or, or not, you know, I mean, the same way of eyes wide shut is not ever filmed in New York. It's all on sound stages and the, the film, it lends the film this real dream quality. Um, and, and I, 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 am on the side of intentional. I mean, I think those choices, d- despite the fact that I know that he just doesn't like to travel. Um, I think that those choices were very conscious and I, I, I think there is a kind of a line that can be drawn between that surreal element of full metal jacket, um, and the, uh, framing of this film as this kind of, 
out of time, out of history. Um, it, here it's done in order to make the, a kind of, uh, pretentious larger statement about war. Um, whereas, you know, in, well, we'll get into full metal jacket <laughs> eventually, but I think here, you know, it, 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 he's still sort of conscious of the artificiality of filmmaking and using that to his advantage. I think he just wasn't able to kind of take that advantage. Um, you know, he, he, he saw that opportunity. Um, he just doesn't yet have the skill to be able to grab onto it. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, there is the surreal, I mean, you know, just the fact that we're in this psychological landscape that he's setting up in here, because very much, much of the second half of Full Metal Jacket is this uh, fantasy, fantastic version of the war where everything is a little weird and a little different than it should be. It's not normal, which war should never be normal, but instead of being realistically brutal, it's fantastically bizarre, like the the, the, the scenarios that they're in. But, uh, like, the very first, not the first shot of uh, Fear and Desire, but the second shot, the first shot is kind of like a pan over the forest, you know, and you have that uh, that uh, narration by the narrator who is only there for the opening narration and never makes another appearance again. But uh, the first shot of the four of them uh, kind of stranded in the woods together, if you, if you watch it closely, it's, it's a, like four or five frames on loop it's not like one shot of them standing there it, there's a repetitive glitch that keeps on happening in that shot because either he didn't have enough of it you know maybe they started acting or they started walking or they started talking at some point but he needed that moment of them standing there while the narrator talks about this group of men um and because of that glitch and the repetitive nature of a couple of the characters movements it sets up this nightmarish dreamscape, like right away, which I know is, you know, it was a choice in editing probably as a solve, but it actually kind of subconsciously sets up the mood of where you're going to be to be something that is odd and not of this, n not of this normal world. Um, so whether he did it intentionally or not, it still works effectively in setting up this psychological landscape. I keep using that term, but that's that's all I can. I mean, I, I read somewhere them talking about this as an allegory for something, but an allegory, you need to be able to draw a connection to something, some sort of tale or story that this per There's no allegory here. There's no, you know, coming out of the cave. There's... There, there's no there's no connection to real world. None of these characters stand in for a larger idea. They are just like, you know, I think someone was being too kind to the film. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's where, you know, like, you know, far be it for me to call one of the greatest directors of all time pretentious. But the, I do feel like pretentious is is applicable to this film um, because I, I do think um, he was striving for something that he wasn't yet able to accomplish. And, uh, he, he thought he was telling this allegory and this sort of, uh, delivering this larger message. Um, 
about war or about humanity or whatever it was, but there's, there's nothing underneath the surface, which is odd for a Kubrick film because there's always so much under the surface of his movies. And eventually that, I mean, in a way that pretentiousness is what eventually led him to being as great, genuinely great as he was because, um, you know, I think with, with the vast majority of great artists, you're not fully formed out of the gate. You don't have the skills yet to execute your vision and your talent. And, uh, it's good to be pretentious initially, you know, because you, you're trying to make work that's better than the level that you're at now in the hopes of one day getting to that level. You know, if you, if you start out very modest and make a simple movie that is, is not beyond your skills, there's probably a good chance that you will never progress beyond that level because you're never stretching out and trying something new. So, um, you know, we've, we've ragged on this movie a lot, but I think, um, the, it's more the things that he didn't do well in this film that informed the rest of his career than the things that were actually kind of interesting in the movie. Oh um, yeah, for sure. So I, I, I think, yeah, that in that way it's, it's very illuminating. Oh yeah. I think, I think for sure that this is, um, you know, you could easily see him going back to this film and correcting things into future films, you know, saying, Oh, these soldiers weren't realistic. So now I really want to, <clears throat> excuse me. I really want to do my homework for this kind of stuff or, Oh, I really want this character to feel this way. But instead of having him say it, how can I show it? Uh, you know, Oh, I really want, you know, you could see him like from this being his, you know, big, you know, misstep, but not a misstep. Cause I mean, that's another thing I always teach in film schools um, is, uh, you have to fail to grow. Because if you're just, if you come out of the gate, awesome, you either are going to get more awesome or you're just going to go downhill. Like you've already hit your awesome, you know, there is no greater than being awesome. After that, you just can only go down. There's a downward trajectory. It's kind of like social anxiety. You can only get so anxious before it comes down. You know, you can only make something so amazing before you have to come down. Um, and... Kubrick came out with lots of mistakes, which I think he he has mined for the rest of his films to never make those mistakes again. I mean, from his camera work where you could see like the lens reflecting on a filter or vignetting because he had the wrong lenses for the camera, you know, where you could see the corners of the screen uh, black because the lens wasn't the right size for the uh, the film the film size. So you can see that there's all these little technical mistakes that he'll never make again. Um, you know, and he starts to get really, really focused on making sure those things don't happen. And then there's also the spatial spatial awareness. Um, you know, he becomes so good at spatial awareness that he then flaunts how none of these spatially aware situations can happen in the hotel in the shining, because that adds a sense of, uh, dread and, uh, you know, being lost in that giant hotel by yourself. He makes these spatially, uh, significant choices to why this room shouldn't have a window if this is here, or this shouldn't have this hallway should never connect to this section here. And, 
he plays with that. But in this movie, it's just he's unaware of how to make those spatially to make those spatial uh, distances complete and connect so everyone feels like they're in their own film that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um the one the one other movie that I wanted to mention uh in relation to this film uh before we uh before we wrap up is uh the Joseph von Sternberg film uh Anatahan uh which was released uh this same year. Um in 53 and, uh, was his last movie. Um, and I, I was reminded of it frequently in this film. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it yet. Uh, it's, it's, a, it was, it was very difficult to see for a long time. Um, it was just, uh, given a restoration, um, and, um, put out, uh, on Blu-ray a few months ago. Um, and it's, it's a bizarre movie that's unlike really anything else. Um, it, it, Anatahan is an island in the Pacific where um, some Japanese soldiers were stationed during during the war, and they uh, were uh, because they were sort of isolated. They became uh, unaware that the war had ended, um, and so continued to sort of man their defenses. Um, and even when they heard that the war had ended, they didn't believe that, ja that Japan would surrender and they refused to return, uh, and were on the Island for, I think seven years or something. It's a true story. Um, and, uh, the film is told, uh, the, the film, the, the actors speak Japanese in the film. They're Japanese actors. Um, but there's no subtitles instead uh the entire movie is narrated um by von sternberg himself um so he through through the entire movie there's just narration over the dialogue uh that's being spoken uh describing what is going on in the film it's really bizarre and um clunky but in this like very endearing way um and I do think, uh, for anybody here listening that it's, it's, it's a film that's worth seeing just in general because it's so unusual, but it's also really interesting to see, uh, the final movie from, uh, uh, you know, one of the great, uh, filmmakers in my opinion, uh, um, and somebody who made movies in a similar way to, um, Kubrick in, in, in terms of control. Um, and, uh, where, although he's, his career is kind kind of mirrored what Orson Welles more in the sense of that he was constantly making movies that didn't make money and nobody wanted to allow him to make movies, despite the fact that he was clearly, you know, this significant talent. Um, and, uh, you know, and to have that film be made in the same year as this one that kicked off, uh, Kubrick's career, um, and, and a very different path, um, for a filmmaker, uh, you know, Kubrick had kind of one of the, the more blessed careers of the sort of great filmmakers, the, this ability to basically do whatever he wanted, uh, you know, uh, give or take a Napoleon or two. Um, and, uh, and really, you know, make the movies that he wanted, take the time that he wanted to take. Um, and the contrast between 
those stages of their career and the, 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 these two movies, which are both kind of similar topics. Um, it makes for, for an interesting, um, comparison. Huh. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. That's a, that's a film I have not seen, but that's a, that's cool. I always like making those connections. That's the, that's some of the fun of watching some of these, uh, older films. Oh yeah. Kind of like looking at the age around them to see, you know, once I kind of, I watch this, I was like, man, this feels like, uh, this has a lot of steel helmet feel. And then I go back and see that, you know, steel helmet came out two years before this. So this is totally within the wheelhouse and reality of Kubrick seeing this movie and being influenced by it. And then knowing that Sternberg's film came out the same time and has the same kind of, uh, feel to it makes, uh, makes for an interesting pairing. I'd like to, yeah, I'll definitely like to check that out. Yeah. And, and, um, I mean, with, when it, with regards to steel helmet, which I totally thought of as well, watching this movie, I mean, that's only, um, Fuller's third film. So, uh, you know, you look at the accomplishment of steel helmet and then two years later, this, this kid puts out fear and desire. Um, those two filmmakers went in very different directions. And I, I don't necessarily know that seeing those two movies in the early fifties that you would have expected those directions to, to go the way that they went. <laughs> oh yeah, no, um, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, you, it's interesting. Yeah. The way Fuller went, you know, cause he was so specific in yeah. his uh, choices of what he made versus Kubrick who wanted to go completely different way from, you know, his, his uh, origins is, uh, yeah, that's a it's an inter- interesting trajectory to uh, to path. So in the future, uh, as we go through these uh, movies, we'll, uh, I thought it would be fun to kind of uh, rank them personally. Um, ah, nice. So we will be doing that uh, in the future at this point in the podcast. Um, I, I don't think it's really necessary for us to throw out ratings or anything for these movies. I mean, ultimately... <laughs> It's more interesting, I think, to look at them within the context of the rest of the films that um, Kubrick made, as opposed to comparing them to other films. Um, but as of now, uh, Fear and Desire is my favorite Kubrick movie. I don't know how you feel. <laughs> so it has to be because there are no others <laughs> as of this point. It's so also my it's also my least favorite Kubrick movie, though I should add. So. On a scale of one to one, <laughs> one being the highest and the lowest simultaneously, I am going to say yes, I agree. So good. We'll do a sliding scale as movies come out. We'll place them into their uh, order. That'll be fun. <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, you know, I would have to say that probably this movie, it's crazy. The the guy who produced this movie or released this movie, um, he released uh, Bergman uh, Joseph Bernstein is the guy who released this film. Oh, yeah. He died, right, in a plane crash? Yeah. And yeah. He, he put out a lot of uh, a lot of high art films of the time. Hmm. Like, he, was, he, was, he had his hand in a lot of uh, very important films. So there had to have been either something in this film that he related to and would want to spend money to put out, or it was a B picture that he would put in with something else. So I, this movie has a, has a total B picture quality to it and B picture feel to it. So I would love to, 
I, I didn't have time to investigate, and I'm just kind of spinning this theory right now. I'd love to see what maybe this movie ran with. As a, I can totally see this as a B, B, B movie before the main feature. You know, yeah, at a hundred, at a hundred, at a at one hour long. I did. I don't know if it made it out of New York actually um, oh. for screenings, uh, but uh, and the review uh, from the New York Times is um, is. Uh, not um attributed to anybody it's just a it's just a review that was uh that's listed online um but yeah i i think uh it's interesting there uh you know on on wikipedia it's the kind of thing that people would put on wikipedia there's these little um snippets of um contemporary uh people uh, seeing the movie and saying oh, this Kubrick kid is a, is someone to watch. Um, you know, it's kind of like the equivalent of somebody in like the early or the late seventies saying like, I think you should buy Apple stock. It's like, <laughs> you know, it, it, and, and it's kind of amazing that they watched this movie. I don't know that I would have been able to do that. You'd look at this movie and say, right. this is going to be somebody, um, really special in the future. I think the, the the thing that would have stood out for me and made me really, really uh, stand up and take notice is the violence. That's it. Yeah. Like the scene of violence in the cabin, the, uh, you know, the perceived sexual or the sexual violence that we might be about to witness with Sydney and the girl. Yeah. And then at the end with the death of the uh, the general who... I, I still, I've watched the movie three times now, and I still don't understand what they're trying to get to with this idea of who the general is. And we never mentioned that the general is played by the right. same character who plays the lieutenant, and the, and they're very Germanic in their appearance. Yeah, and I could never, I could never figure out if they, if that was on purpose, or if it was uh, just the fact that they didn't have any other people <laughs> on the movie. You know, with... It, I would think with this, the the whole, you know, once again, my psychological landscape, that this has to mean something, you know, yeah. that they're playing the same characters. And, and it's funny because uh, the character that plays, I think it's, is it Fletcher? The character who plays Fletcher also plays the general's captain. Right. And Fletcher kills the captain and the lieutenant kills the general. So they're killing themselves. Um, that gets back to, I mean, this is going to be a spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen it, but the shooting, the, uh, the Western, um, yeah, it's yeah, a, the shooting. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a weird, I, I don't, I can see where you could make something of this, but they have such a, like yeah. uh, when, when Sydney's sitting there trying to make the girl laugh and he's doing his impression of what he thinks the general is, it's so over the top insane that I like, I'm constantly struggling. Like in all my notes, I'm constantly struggling. Like who is Cooper trying to say the general is like, it's, it, it's so wildly varied that it's, it's, it's such a, like that is one of those big failings. Like he's trying to set him, set this general up as this mythic creation where Sidney believes he's this just guy who can get whatever he wants and he's eat and he's gluttonous. And Mac believes that he's the, th he's like 
the face of evil that he would have to stop to prove that he's done something good in this war and the lieutenant just sees him as a mirror image of himself like it's such a like there's like it's it's this it's it isn't it's half baked it's not fully formed so there's no way to really kind of say I think this is what Kubrick was trying to say. Right. But it's all these avenues that you can go down and it's not even dead ends at the end of them. It's just, they just dissipate into nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's definitely, you can, I think those are the types of things where in retrospect, looking at his career, you can see that he is, you know, there are those very small, tiny strands of Kubrick in this film that he, will pluck out and kind of weave something stronger later but right now it's it's it, like if i was to just go to the movies to see this on a friday night with some friends that'd just be all i'd remember is like oh my god that murder scene was insane right that's all i would remember yeah i wonder too if if his career as a photographer had had you know the advantage of of being able to to you know 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 these people and or have ins with with distributors mm. in order to get the movie shown. I mean, the one other thing that we didn't mention here, just as an aside, is that Paul Mazursky is in this movie. Oh yeah, uh, which is yep. super random, um, and uh, just one of those. I guess it's just one of those funny coincidences because it's not like they work together again in the future. Oh, no. um, it's just. Uh, for some reason, uh, you know, this, uh, future writer director of movies that are completely different than, uh, anything that, uh, that Kubrick made, um, was, was starring in one of, in his future debut. And yeah. And and this was Mazursky's first acting role too. Yeah. And he spent, he, he spent like a decade as mostly as an, as an actor, right? I think. Yeah, and, and it's all like little side side characters, weirdos, or he always, he had a type that he played. Yeah, but, uh, it's funny. All of them. I think uh, was it a uh, Frank Frank Silvera who who is the only one that he comes back and plays a character in uh, Paths of Glory, but uh, the movie that he it was nineteen fifty two. So the other nineteen fifty two movie that he was in that year was as the narrator in the movie White Mane. Hmm. A Janus film, yeah. a Janus kids film, huh. um, and then Kenneth Harp never did anything else except a little bit of TV. Same with Steve Coit, who I think only did this movie. Yeah, well, Frank but, Silvera I think was the only one who had actually been in anything before, right? Yeah, he yeah. he had like five or six credits, um, and then Virginia Leith, who's the girl, who is very striking. Her eyes were yeah amazing. Um, she. She had a few things. She played some bit characters in noir films, but the one that uh, we'll all know her as is Jan in the Pan from The Brain That Wouldn't Die. <laughs> she is Jan in the Pan. If you're a big Mystery Science Theater fan, that's a great one. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, that, I think Jan in the Pan pretty much uh, wraps this up. Um, <laughs> this is fun. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, you know, next time we'll... Uh, We'll move on to, um, I think, uh, sunnier pastures. Some some people actually uh, prefer Killer's Kiss to The Killing. Um, so oh. uh, I, I have not seen... This is another one I haven't seen in quite a long time. So I'll be curious to uh, to revisit it. Um, yeah, I, I only bought the, the Criterion disc a couple... Uh, 
like actually at the last sale, I the last flash sale, I think. So I haven't, oh, okay. I haven't even watched, uh, the killing on Blu-ray yet. Um, but yeah, I've seen that I, a few times. I don't think I've seen either of those on Blu-ray. I saw the killing recently at the Brattle. They were showing it, uh, 35 and I was excited to see it, but, uh, killer's kiss. Yeah. I, I, I just have little sketches of remembering what that movie was about just two or three scenes in my head, but it's been a while and I haven't seen it on Blu-ray for sure. Cool. All right. Well, uh, until next time. Yes. See you later. Thank you very much for having me. Oh yeah.